Good afternoon and welcome to Legally Speaking with Music and Music. I'm your host, Joanne Music, uh, here today in the studio with my partner and father, Earl Music. How are you today, Earl? Doing well. Great. We've got uh, some great topics for today and uh, want to remind our listeners that they can call in. We'll take your questions on the air, try to give you an answer at 281 447 1114. You can also find us on Twitter at LegalSpeakMM, on Facebook, or on Instagram. You can find us on all the social media. Send us your questions or comments, and we'll see if we can't get you an answer. I want to start with something that kind of has my blood boiling a little bit. Um, Just yesterday, the Court of Criminal Appeals reversed a murder conviction out of Harris County from 2002. So some 14 years ago, uh, defendant, last name of uh, Headley, was convicted of murder. Turns out the key witness in his case, the eyewitness that testified against him, was actually given a deal. She was offered time served, misdemeanor time, on two felony charges in exchange for her testimony. However, that deal was never disclosed to the defense, so the jury never heard about it, could not consider whether that deal is what sort of swayed or caused her testimony, um, and a longstanding principle in, uh, in the law that the state, the prosecutor, has an obligation to reveal any deals with witnesses to the defense They have to reveal what's called exculpatory evidence, anything that tends to negate the the guilt uh, or anything that mitigates the guilt. The um, and also they have to reveal anything that's impeachment evidence. And so here we're talking about impeachment evidence. The jury was entitled to know that was potential impeachment evidence that the that the witness was given a deal. So I want to jump right into that, uh, sort of setting it up there, but uh, long intro to that, but it's kind of important to understand what's going on. So this is a writ of habeas corpus that's an attack on the conviction uh, down the road. And I think it's important also to mention that up until she receives this fantastic deal that the state doesn't disclose to the defense, She's not cooperating. She doesn't show up for court, and it appears that without her cooperation, the state's going to have to dismiss charges against the defendant. And that's a good point there, Earl, because I want to back up for just a second and and, and lay a little bit of this out there. The um, case was originally filed in late 2001, along uh, early 2002, The case was ready for trial in the 228th District Court here in Harris County. I believe Judge Ted Poe was on the bench at that time. And uh, the case had to be dismissed on trial date because the witness, this Rebecca Broussard, failed to show up to testify for the state. So the state, in fact, had to dismiss the murder charges because the one and only witness, the one and only key witness, eyewitness to this murder, failed to appear for trial and failed to uh, provide testimony. So, uh, case gets dismissed. As luck would have it, Miss Broussard finds herself uh, arrested and accused of 
felony forgery and felony possession of a controlled substance. And this is within uh, a month or two of the case being dismissed. So when she finds herself back in jail, obviously the prosecutors find her as well. So prosecutor at the time, a gentleman by the name of Rob Fryer, worked in the Harris County District Attorney's Office, now works up in the Montgomery County District Attorney's Office, went to meet with her in the jail, uh, talked to her about you know, not showing up for court and how they had to dismiss the case and how they were going to refile the case now and proceed and that she was going to have to testify. In their discussions at some point, uh, Rob Fryer offered her a deal, told her he would let her plead to time served under what's called 1244A. It's a provision of the penal code that allows for misdemeanor time on what would otherwise be a felony conviction. Misdemeanor time means they serve it in the county jail rather than in a prison facility, and it can be no more than one year. So, uh, gets a deal on these two felonies for 1244A and time served in exchange for her testimony. And also, um, I think important uh, to this, she apparently receives a promise from the prosecutor that once she's testified, once she's completed her part of the bargain, that she'll be released from jail. Yeah. quite an incentive uh, for someone to testify. Absolutely. Incentive to testify is we're going to hold you in jail until the day you testify. As soon as you testify, we're going to let you go. Um, And to accomplish that, her bond was placed at no bond. Uh, now, I want to take a little aside here uh, and talk about bonds. We've talked about it before on this show, um, and there's a large push in Harris County right now and across the nation for bond reform, but specifically in Harris County because there's now a federal lawsuit pending against the county uh, for their bond practices. Um, so, it, first of all, let's start with the Texas Constitution guarantees every accused person a right to bail. To a reason to a reasonable bail. And there are a few exceptions carved out in that in, in the Constitution. For example, one of those would be capital murder. Someone accused of capital murder is not, the judge is not required to give them a bond. Somebody who is a uh, repeat offender, third strike rule, if you will, um, the judge is not required to give that person a bond. Uh, but there's there's legal currently under indictment and uh, picks up a, an additional felony. Right. There's a couple of there's probably about four or five exceptions to being eligible for bond, if you will. Uh, from what I can tell, Miss Broussard met none of those exceptions exceptions, so she was entitled to a bond. However, her conversations with the prosecutor. Uh, led her to believe she was not going to get a bond and she was going to stay in custody until she testified. And the day that she testified, they would cut her loose with time served on her two felony offenses. Is that the way you understood it, Earl? That's the way I understand it. Um. And so what happens, obviously she does testify. Uh, the Mr. Headley um, gets convicted and is doing time in the Texas prison for murder. Along comes new lawyers on what we call a writ of habeas corpus. That's an attack on the conviction later uh, for some 
usually for constitutional grounds or maybe even actual innocence grounds. Here we're not talking about actual innocence, but we're talking about a constitutional violation. They alleged that he was denied his right to due process, and he was denied his right and his attorney's right to rigorously cross-examine the witness about a deal that she got. Um, and what happened was Judge Carter here in the 228th now had a hearing. They presented witnesses. They presented evidence. And he found there was, in fact, a deal that was made with the witness, and that deal was not disclosed to the defendant or his lawyer, and therefore due process rights had been violated. Sixth Amendment right to confront the accusers, that's to properly cross-examine them, had been denied, and he requested that relief be granted, meaning that his conviction, Mr. Headley's conviction, be set aside. The Court of Criminal Appeals yesterday granted that request and affirmed Judge uh, Carter's opinion that relief should be granted. So, but let's back up a little bit and talk about kind of how this happened, uh, because I find it interesting. It's probably, it's one of those technicalities in the law, but it also goes to the heart of the system. It's the heart of the judicial system. Prosecutors are required to provide exculpatory, mitigating, and impeachment evidence to the defense so the defense can properly test the state's case. And, and let me add that that's well-established law. It's been the law for many, many years, uh, and it's it's an important law. Uh, it's basically like in this particular case that we're talking about, uh, you have Ms. Broussard, who's presenting testimony, and apparently has met with the district attorney's office, and they've kind of laid out some ground rules for her. Uh, one thing that we know is that she would not be able to make a bond or she would not be able to get out of jail until after she testified. Um, so, so don't you know that she has realized, I mean, a, a reasonable person would realize, man, I'm sitting here in jail and I need to tell these people what they want to hear or I'm not going to get out of jail. And so it basically, she had an incentive to possibly lie and tell the prosecutor what they wanted to hear in order for them to get their conviction. In order for her to get out of jail and for her to walk away from two felony charges. Well, absolutely. And But the point that I want to make is... Um, this would have never happened if the state itself would just play fair and, and say, uh, we're going to give you everything that we possibly have that might be mitigating circumstances or might be impeachment. Uh, we're going to give you that because we feel confident about our case. And then try that case and let the, let the jury and, you, and the judicial system uh, decide guilt or innocence. Not well, cheap to win. And that's what it really comes down to. And a, a prosecutor's obligation is to seek justice, not just convictions. And when you say, you know, cheat to win, withholding evidence, in my book, is cheating to win. 
prosecutors should not withhold evidence, especially where it's mandated that they disclose that evidence. And here we're talking about a case, Brady v. versus Maryland from 1963, where the United States Supreme Court said in 1963, prosecutors will disclose this information. It's been the law since 1963. Courts have hit on it again and again and reminded prosecutors of this duty. And yet we still today have prosecutors not willing to follow that law. And I think if you ask the general public, um, do you feel that it's permissible for someone to get off of criminal charges because of a technicality? And most of the public is going to say a technicality should not cause you to be able to get off from a, uh, from a criminal charge. Uh, that's what we have been conditioned to uh, to believe and to accept. But if you ask that same general public, uh, is it okay to cheat to win? They're going to overwhelmingly say, no, it is not. Well, that's and what people it... should not be allowed to cheat. And, Absolutely. And basically, the point I make is that a technicality in a lot of cases means that one side or the other cheated to win. Absolutely. And our, our entire system, our entire, entire judicial system is based on fairness. The defendant has an absolute right to a fair trial. That means we don't cheat in his trial in order to get the conviction. Um, so I want to, you know, I want to get down to what was the issue here. Um, when in 2002, when Ms. Broussard went into jail, and she was cut a deal to testify. Uh, apparently, it went so far as that when she was brought before the grand jury to testify about the murder and, and about her, what she would be testifying to, the prosecutor, uh, Assistant District Attorney Rob Fryer at the time, stated on the record in the grand jury testimony, or in the during the grand jury testimony, he stated that, uh, and I'll quote here, we all know you will be given a sentence under 1244A for two crimes that you have, and you'll get credit for the time that you've got in. In response to Rob Fryer's statement, uh, Broussard replied that was indeed what she understood to be happening. Now, the defense in this case, in Headley's case on the writ, not only discovered that grand jury testimony where Rob Fryer cut a deal and made it known to the grand jury, memorialized it in a transcript, but in addition to that, he had contacted the prosecutor who was in charge of Broussard's two new felony cases, told that prosecutor, do not allow Broussard to plead guilty or enter in any type of plea negotiations until after she testifies for me, and do not do anything on this case until you consult me and you have my permission to do something. So, you know, you've got Rob Fryer interjecting himself not only into cutting a deal with this witness, but then telling other prosecutors, now look, you don't do anything with this case, even though it's assigned to you and you're responsible for it, don't do anything with it without checking with me because I want to hold her feet to the fire. I want to make sure she testifies for me before we let her go. And in fairness to the other prosecutors, there is nothing in the record or anything that makes us believe that the prosecutors that actually prosecuted 
of the case actually knew that um, that Rob Fryer had cut a deal. Well, and that's what's pretty clear from the findings of fact that uh, it were entered in this case by Judge Carter. Um, it's pretty clear that Rob was the only person who really knew about this deal. Now, I want to talk a lot more about that deal uh, and how everybody, how all this came to light uh, and the 14 years we've spent fighting about it uh, when we come back. But we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Hope you'll join us right after the break. Angels. At the altar of the sun They were praying for a lover In the valley of the gun When the battle stopped and we're back. You're listening to Legally Speaking with Music and Music. little throwback there to last night's CMA Awards. Earl picked our uh, little uh, break music there with Seven Spanish Angels. He, uh, You want to tell us what you heard last night that reminded you? Well, uh, let's get... Let's get it clear. Last night, I watched the probably the greatest World Series game <laughs> that, uh, that's ever been played. Uh, but... Uh, there was a lot of discussion about uh, the Country Music Awards, and that was one of the songs that was that was played. Gotcha. So I knew you'd have been watching the World Series. Uh, but let's get back to where we were just before the break, uh, talking about some prosecutorial misconduct here in Harris County, where uh, when a case was tried back in 2002, Rob Fryer had cut a deal with the witness, failed to disclose that. Um, recently... The court held a hearing and discovered that, uh, well, let me start with Rob Fryer himself was called as a witness and testified. As I understand the testimony, and I've not read the entire transcript, but uh, I've talked to the lawyers involved in the case. As I understand, Rob initially testified that he did not believe this was a deal and therefore it didn't need to be disclosed. He hadn't really cut a deal and it wasn't done ahead of time. It was something that, uh, you know, a deal like that was struck later and had nothing really to do with her testimony. Um, well, apparently then on the stand, he was confronted with not only the grand jury transcript that we talked about, where he told her in the grand jury, you know, we all know you're about to get a sentence under 1244A for these two cases, and you'll get credit for time served when you testify. Um, he also was confronted with the fact that he had told the other prosecutor that was handling Broussard's case that she was not to dispose of the cases. Um, as his testimony developed and he got confronted with this, with this documentation of his deal, as I understood it, his testimony changed somewhat and he ended up testifying, well, it wasn't really so much that I had a deal that I didn't want to disclose. It was that he himself had planned to tell the jury about that deal, so there was no need to tell the defense attorney about it. It was his plan, had he tried the case, to bring that out, bring out this deal on the direct examination of Rebecca Broussard so that he could let the jury know about it, uh, the court would know about it, and defense counsel would know about it there in the courtroom. Um, now, I say that was his plan had he tried the case. Interesting development in the case. Uh, turns out Rob Fryer had to be removed from the case. He did not try it. 
it was learned and discovered that he had a personal relationship with the lead investigator, the lead detective on the case, uh, an officer, Connie Parks, that it was discovered that the two of them were in a relationship. And so his chief prosecutor at the time took the case away from him and said, this isn't right. You can't handle a case. You can't try a case where you have a relationship with the lead witness. Wasn't that the same thing that in the Goforth case, that a couple of deputies were fired because of having a relationship with a witness? Yeah, and that's exactly right. You know, you got the deputy Goforth killing this past year where, um, you know, Sergeant Clopton was, ended up terminated, and I, I can't think of the other officer's name, and then and then a third one, I think, disciplined. But several officers disciplined when it came to light that they had relationships with this witness, uh, intimate relationships with the eyewitness to the murder who happened to be there. Um, you know, it's just, it's like, like they say, you don't mix business and pleasure. So, you know, this is, if Rob Fryer's in the business of prosecuting cases, you don't get to be involved in intimate relationships with the witnesses you're going to put on the stand and act like this is just a regular old witness who's up here telling the truth and you've got no dog in the fight, right? So, it's kind of like a double standard is what I wanted to point out because there was a lot of criticism from the district attorney's office about the deputies that were involved, and, and rightfully so. Yeah, and that certainly makes a make a good point there. When um, when it came to be known that uh, Sergeant Clopton and others were having had intimate relationships with the witness that was uh, it, the witness to the murder in Deputy Goforth's case, when that came to light, the prosecutor's office was appalled and said. You know, he shouldn't have been investigating a crime scene where he's involved with the witnesses. That's sort of like saying, you know, um, if I'm the police officer and, you know, my house gets burglarized, I can do the entire investigation. I can figure out who did it and I can prosecute that person. I mean, I'm the judge and the jury. I'm everybody. I'm going to I'm the victim, but I'm also the cop and I'm also the judge and the jury. And I'm going to decide. You know, most law enforcement agencies have policies that prohibit that type of conduct. Yeah, and surprisingly at the time, apparently the Sheriff's Department did not have such a policy. They did not think to write down, you can't sleep with the witnesses. Uh, so they had to create that policy, uh, and that's in place now. But uh, I, I digress, but you're right. It absolutely is a double standard. The, the prosecutor's office was very upset about that and not knowing that this conflict existed. But then here you had a case um, where it sounds like Rob Fryer's chief prosecutor did the right thing and took the case away from him once it was discovered. Um, but he certainly didn't step back from the case when he was involved with the witness. But, okay, so he does not end up trying the case. Another prosecutor tries the case. Uh, second prosecutor, as I understand from the hearing and from Judge Carter's findings, the second prosecutor on the case did not, was not aware of the deal that had been struck. And so that prosecutor didn't disclose it either. Um, you know, so, you know, I guess sort of to swing back to my point, Rob Fryer testified at first, well, it really wasn't a deal. I really didn't have to disclose it. But then when he gets confronted with the hard evidence, he turns and says, well, I was going to disclose it anyway. Had I tried the case, I'd have put it out there. 
and I'm just sitting there, you know, thinking this happened in 2002. We've come a long way since 2002. There have been numerous court opinions, numerous attorney ethics opinions from the state bar that say this is wrong. Prosecutors cannot hide Brady evidence. Brady v. Maryland, that's the 1963 case. And the state bar has said prosecutors' duty goes beyond just Brady. They have an obligation to turn over this evidence. When they don't, it's an ethical violation. We've had all of these cases pointing that out since 2002, and here we are 14 years later, and this prosecutor's getting on the stand. And I say this prosecutor because he's still a prosecutor. He's moved on from Harris County up to Montgomery County, still a prosecutor, and still to this day is under the belief that he did nothing wrong. He didn't have to tell anybody. Well, uh, the, Court of Appeal, the Court of Criminal Appeals yesterday said, you know what, you did do it wrong, and now, excuse me, the defendant is going to get a do-over. So hundreds of thousands of dollars wasted trying this case the first time, trying this case, you know, uh, or fighting this case on the writ. The, you know, the state, it, was, it just boggles my mind that the state could go forward on this case with a straight face and present to the court, our prosecutor at the time, Rob Fryer, did nothing wrong. I, I just don't get it. I don't get how they even continue that with a straight face and pay the prosecutors, use taxpayer money and resources to fight something that's wrong. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. And uh, I, I like to, to kind of dumb things down a little bit and become a little more simple. Uh, basically, the Court of Appeals says, you can't cheat to win. And the, and the state keeps saying, we're going to push the envelope and we're going to go as close as we can to uh, violating the law. But in actuality, they cross that line when they, when they fail to disclose uh, information to the defense. Um, and why is all of that important? The reason it's important is we have people Every day we find out about someone who spent a lot of time behind bars uh, cooped up in a small cage because they were innocent, but the state cheated to win. And yeah. the state won uh, at the cost of the poor individual. And it even goes further than that. It goes if they have someone locked up for committing a crime they're no longer looking for the person that really committed that crime. That, as far as law enforcement, as far as everyone's concerned, that case is over. It's, it's been uh, solved. Uh, and you only have to look as far as uh, the Martin case up in Williamson County. Michael Martin. Where Michael Martin spent, I believe, close to 25 years in prison. That's right. While the murderer of his wife was free to kill again and did actually kill again, while the police thought they had this whole thing solved. Open and shut case, we've got it solved, let's move on. Uh, and you've left the real criminal out there on the streets, and you're focused on the wrong one. Um, hundreds of thousands of dollars tied up in, in innocent people being wrongfully convicted, uh, and then fighting that over the years. Now, I want to make just a, a, a slight distinction or, or notation here, if you will, that in this case, uh, the Headley case, 
no one is saying necessarily that Headley is innocent. So we're not we're not necessarily talking about an innocence claim here at this point, but we're talking about what was the jury entitled to know, and if the jury had known this, would it have made a difference in the verdict? And the Court of Criminal Appeals is saying, yeah, it might have made a difference. So now we have a do-over. Now it's not a we nobody said at this point he's innocent, just that he's entitled to a do-over. And, and think about, you know, the, the victim in this case, the, the person who was murdered. Think about their family. Fourteen years ago, they thought this case was over and done with. And now it's going to start all over, and they're going to go through the time, the expense, the grief of reliving all of this to try this case again 14 years later because the prosecutor was so arrogant to think, eh, I don't got to tell anybody. No one will ever figure it out. Also, um You've, you've got 12, at least 12 people on the jury and possibly 13, if they had an alternate, that spent a considerable amount of time, and I don't, I don't know how long it took to try this case, but it's not uncommon at all that a murder case in Harris County would take two to three weeks sometimes. And sometimes, as a juror... And this was in Poe's court at the time, so I'm going to guess so about a week. a lot faster. I'm going to guess it went a lot faster. A lot he faster. Was, he was in early, he stayed late, he worked quickly through the day, and he pushed on. So I'm going to guess about a week in Poe's court, but and, but I got and, your point. And you would probably be, be correct. The point that I want to make is that in, in some murder cases, especially in murder cases, uh, the jury is sequestered, where they're locked away, in a, in a room with the bailiff watching them and no cell phones, you can't use your cell right. phone while you're uh, injured, and they are themselves imprisoned uh, for sometimes weeks. Uh, and I don't know what happened in, in Judge Poe's court. Uh, he was one of our, uh, our better jurists, and now he's a State representative. Exactly. I mean, I'm sorry, a federal. No, uh, 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 yeah, a United States congressman, congressman. Uh, Senator Ted Poe. Um, I, I want to share with you uh, just a, a comment here that came in on Facebook uh, regarding this story. If you want to follow up more and read some of the court opinions or the uh, findings of fact on this story, you can check it out over at uh, Fault Lines blog if you'll Google that. Fault Lines blog, you'll see that I posted an article about this this morning, um, and uh, I had shared it on Facebook, This, uh, and I just got a comment in that said, uh, I once had a Harris County prosecutor tell me they didn't have to follow Maryland law, and referring to this is a Brady v. Maryland case, and so that's Maryland law, and we don't need to follow that here in Harris County. I find that, you know, so interesting because that is, it, while it's funny, and let me tell you, it's funny to us because we realize Brady v. Maryland is a United States Supreme Court case. So when the United Very States... Right. When the United States Supreme Court speaks, they actually speak to all jurisdictions because we're part of the United States. So it, this same case applies, this same law applies in Texas, in Maryland, in New Mexico, in Arizona, in California. It, 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 you know, it's, it's constitutional law 
And so it applies to everyone. But here you had the arrogance of a Harris County prosecutor telling this particular lawyer that we don't have to follow that Maryland law down here. You know, and I think it kind of underscores, it's funny to me because it does underscore the problem we've had in Harris County um, in particular, where prosecutors are constantly, or not, I shouldn't say constantly, but are consistently being found to have violated the law in regards to Brady failing to disclose evidence. You've got the... uh, case pending now uh, on uh, David Temple in the Court of Criminal Appeals. Similar writ hearing, writ of habeas corpus, uh, where Kelly Siegler, famous Harris County prosecutor at the time, uh, testified just, uh, let's see, that would have been in 2015, testified in 2015 that, yeah, she had exculpatory information, but she didn't believe it, so she didn't have a duty to disclose it. And that's, you know, the court has said, it does not matter if you believe it or not. Your job is to turn it over and let the defense figure out if they can use it or not. Uh, So very interesting there. Um, Anything else you want to add about this? I just find this case extremely fascinating. It may not be near as fascinating to to our listeners as it is to me, but, you know, this prosecutorial win at all costs has to stop. And, and as lawyers, uh, especially as a prosecutor, you have a duty yourself to follow the law. And when you talk about the Supreme Court deciding Brady v. Maryland, the Supreme Court now says this is the law of the land. Uh, there's been a lot of um, a lot of criticism regarding the presidential race, uh, regarding some individuals feeling that uh, that one of the candidates doesn't have to follow the law, that uh, the law doesn't apply to that candidate. And um, it, it really, that mentality really bothers me. Uh, as, a, as a criminal defense lawyer, uh, we do everything within our power to try to follow the law while we represent our clients. Uh, and when the state decides they're going to cheat and they don't have to follow the law, that's wrong, and the very there's no people, way to justify it. The very people charged with upholding the law have no problem breaking it. Uh, we're going to take a break right now. I want to remind our listeners that we'll take your comments on social media, Twitter at LegalSpeakMM, on Facebook or Instagram. You can also call us at 281-447-1114. And we're going to be right back after this quick break, and we're going to get into some school law and some things that are happening in our local schools. We'll be right back. This is Legally Speaking with Music and Music. I'm your host, Joanne Music, here in the studio today with uh, Earl Music, my partner and uh, father. We're coming back from the break. I thought I'd throw in a little smoking in the boys' room because we're going to talk about some school issues here. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw it or not, but uh, this week, uh, ABC 13 reported on a story out of the A-Leaf Independent School District, uh, Landis Elementary where a uh, teacher uh, named Lisa Allison 
has now been charged with injury to a child. Um, she's accused of hitting the student, punching him in the face, pulling him down to the ground, and sitting on him uh, in, out in the hallway in order to, um, I, I suppose as a form of discipline or whatever, but she's now been charged with uh, injury to a child for causing injury to a child under the age of 15. And here we're talking about a seven-year-old, seventh, uh, second grader, seven-year-old child, um, who, according to the teacher, was being noisy in class, and so she asked him to leave the classroom. She then told the uh, A-Leaf school police that she heard the child kicking the locker out in the hallway, so she went out to take him and escort him to the office. Now, the child tells somewhat of a different story. The child says, the second grader says that uh, the teacher told him, I'm tired of you, that she then grabbed him, punched him in the face, pushed him down to the floor, and sat on him. We do know that administrators came to the hallway and found Al, um, Lisa Allison sitting on top of the student, holding him down, uh, and the student was calmly on the floor. So looking at a little bit about what happened in this case, it's pending uh, the in the 178th District Court. The charges, there's a probable cause statement issued that to sort of give us an overview of what the state thinks their case might show. Uh, and what's interesting here is, appears that all of this was caught on video at the school, and uh, that, yes, the teacher did go out in the hallway and speak to the child, uh, but the child does not appear to be doing anything wrong, is not acting aggressive or anything, when she attempts to grab him and he kind of struggles to pull away from her. As they, as they struggle, uh, she is seen grabbing him by the upper part of his back near the neck, probably back of his neck to get a grip on him, and, and forced, she forced him to the ground, uh, struck him in the face with a closed fist. So we're not even talking about, you know, a slap or anything like that. We're talking about a punch. Balled up her fist and punched the student and then pushed him on the ground and sat on him. The, um, the video shows that she had her knee in his back when she got up. Well, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, the video, interestingly, which the student didn't really even say this, but the, according to the police officers, um, as they watched the video, when the teacher was coming, was being told to get off of the student, you could clearly see that not only was she sitting on him and holding him down, but she had her knee wedged into his back uh, to, you know, hold him down. Um, you know, I, I just have a real problem with this. I have a problem. I, I don't want to say kids don't need discipline, but this isn't discipline to me. This is a uh, you know, teacher does not need to be striking a student in the face with a fist. A student does not need to, I mean, a teacher does not need to be throwing a student on the ground. A teacher does not need to be sitting on a student to hold them down, especially a second grader. I mean, we're talking about a seven-year-old here. When I read this, sort of the mama bear in me came out and said, what in the, is going on? You know, what in the world is going on here? And I, I just don't get it. What's happened to our schools? Well, one of, one of the, the problems that we have in our schools is we, we have a tremendous disciplinary problem. And when you say that that has no right to strike a student, 
I believe even a teacher has a right to defend themselves. But oh, you agree. have a video here that's clearly uh, she is not defending herself. Surely this, this teacher is not uh, intimidated by a second grade seven-year-old child. Uh, yeah, so, seventh grader. I mean, a second grader, seven-year-old child couldn't weigh what fifty pounds, uh, and you know you've got. I, I have to agree with you one hundred percent. Teachers should be able to defend themselves, and I'm not at all saying they shouldn't. If kids are out of control, teachers need to take control of the situation. But here, at least the way this is painted, uh, from the way you know ABC. 13 reported on it, and the way I'm reading from the district clerk's website, sworn the, the sworn affidavit from law enforcement that says they watched the video, and that's not what was going on here. The teacher was not defending herself. The child was not out of control. She leaned over, said something to him, then punched him in the face. That certainly jives with what the kid told police was she looked over at him, said, I'm tired of you, then punched him. You know, this is... To me, this is just incredible. You know, she she's listed, I, I hate to say her age, because, you know, we don't, as women, we don't like to talk about age, but the way that the news reported this, she's a 48-year-old 40 woman. Um, shouldn't Definitely shouldn't be intimidated by a second grader. Shouldn't have been in fear or anything like that. And if she was, she should have picked up the phone in the classroom and maybe called the principal, maybe called the police. Uh, but you don't take the kid out in the hall and start beating on him. I just, I, I'm floored. Yeah, and I believe uh, this particular school even had school police that were um, hired by the district to be in the schools for the protection of the students and the And faculty. the faculty, absolutely. And that's the, the thing here. You've got, you know, A-Leaf ISD police were there in the school and came immediately uh, to, you know, to, to take a look at this and see what was going on. Um, you know, it, it's just incredible to me. And, and I think part of the problem is, this is something that I, I talk about a lot uh, on my blogs over at Fault Lines and in, over at Reasonable Doubt, uh, HCCLA's Reasonable Doubt, as well as my own blog over at Music and Music. Our schools have changed quite a bit. We've decided for some reason that normal discipline isn't the way to go. We don't put kids necessarily in detention. We don't, I mean, I'm not saying schools don't. They do, but they don't look for those avenues to solve problems. What they look for is um, sort of, to me, the violent approach. You know, you've got police coming into our schools and making more arrests than ever. Um, charging students, sending them down to juvenile, um, this handcuffing, handcuffing elementary age students, um, you know, and, and escorting them through the halls and putting them in the back of the patrol car and everything. This is just, this type of activity can be very traumatizing for a seven-year-old, for an eight-year-old, for a nine-year-old. So these kids are being traumatized at a very young age. You know, think of all the other students who might have seen this. Um, and they start to think, oh, what's going to happen to me? And, you know, why did, why did she just haul off and hit him? Um, you know, I, I, I want to applaud, I guess, you know, in, in some respects, the school district, as well as the district attorney's office and the police in this case for taking it seriously. School district fired her 
uh, almost immediately. And, of course, the charges were filed and the district attorney's office is prosecuting it. We'll have to wait and see how that case p plays out. But, you know, this, this whole thing that our, our schools are becoming more and more violent and aggressive, and that can't come from the teachers. You know, the aggression, to me, cannot come from them. You know? Um, so anyway, you know, I just got a comment in here uh, on Facebook, and I hate to jump back to it, but the earlier segment we were talking about with Rob Fryer and the Brady versus Maryland case, a uh, comment coming in from a lawyer out in Dallas, uh, I had a prosecutor ask me if I thought they didn't know the law. Right after they told me they're not responsible if the police department knew it but hadn't told them. And so, as you know, Earl, this is kind of funny, you know, the prosecutor apparently is schooling this lawyer by saying, what do you think, we don't know the law? It's not our problem if the police know the exculpatory information, but we don't. Uh, so, you know, interestingly, Kyles B. Whitley out of the United States Supreme Court, uh, I can't remember the date on that case, uh, in the 70s, I believe, um, said, you know what, you can't just hide behind the log, prosecutors, and say, oh, I didn't know about it. This Kyle's case put place the affirmative duty on prosecutors to go out and find it. Go ask the police, do you have any other information? Do you have any leads that didn't pan out? Uh, because those are exculpatory. Did you have any other information, um, you know, that, that you hadn't shared with us yet? that relate to these people at all. Go get that information and give it over. So his point here being, his last, his last sentence of the comment, so yeah, they don't know the law. And, and that's true. Prosecutors don't know the law. And I don't understand why they don't. Um, I will give a little shout out here real quick to, uh, I talked to, uh, you, you'll know this name, Earl, uh, Kevin Petroff was a prosecutor in Houston uh, in Harris County, is now a prosecutor out in Galveston yeah. County. Um, I, I can't remember his exact position out there, but uh, he's in a leadership position at the Galveston County um, District Attorney's Office. And he's very interested in teaching prosecutors out in Galveston about their duties and obligations under Brady. Uh, he and I have been in discussion today, uh, in fact, about an article that's being written by Pat McCann, a local lawyer here, on things that we as defense lawyers wish prosecutors knew and understood about the law as it relates to Brady information. Uh, so a little shout out to him that he's taken the initiative. He's asked me, could he get copies of that article? He wants to put them in the hands of every prosecutor in Galveston County and hope to teach them better. So a little shout out there that things might get a little better down there. But uh, let's get back to the school issue. Um, you know, th this second grader, you know, it clearly may have been noisy in class, but did nothing to instigate being punched in the face and pushed on the floor and sat on. Um, but it, to me, that goes to sort of just a bigger picture of what I'm seeing in the news anyway about what's going on in the schools. We have, you know, these zero tolerance policies where you've got, I wrote about this maybe a six, eight months ago, uh, a child up in Colorado who was expelled, a kindergartner, excuse me, expelled from school 
for bringing a little plastic gun that shoots, that sprays bubbles, it blows bubbles, um, for bringing a bubble gun to school. They said, oh, that's a simulated firearm, you know, despite the fact that it was a little toy gun that didn't even remotely look like a real gun. Um, you know, you've got the children that are getting expelled under the zero tolerance for, uh, you know, a student nearby them having an asthma attack. They hand the inhaler over to that other student, possibly save that student's life, and then are getting expelled because they weren't supposed to share their inhaler with someone else. You know, you, you've got police in the schools. We saw the, the videos all over YouTube where the officers are going into special ed classes and, like, you know, knocking the students to the floor, handcuffing them to desks, things like that. I think our, our school environment has just gotten way out of control. And, and I don't know where the, the problem lies. Is it with the uh, administrators? Is it with the teachers? Is it with the police? Is it a combination of those for, you know, those uh, factors. Got a comment coming in here that says, have you not seen these second graders today? Some <laughs> of them are bigger than me. Uh, you know, it, some of them might be a little bit big, but come on, these are seven-year-old second graders. Um, you know, even if they're biggest, they're probably 70 pounds, you know, Um but you know, but where does this problem start? Is it with the way our schools are policed? Well, I think that uh, that basically the the problem starts because of uh, uh, people's disregard for authority completely. Um, I, unfortunately, I believe if you ended up checking uh, some of the problem students, you would find out that that they have very little. Um, interaction with their family and uh, it's uh, it is a method to get attention uh, when when this kid gets put out of class because he's disrupting the class uh, apparently he went outside and was kicking the lockers making a little he, noise he wanted he wanted attention um, now uh, but, you but know, obviously we, we, that's... Expect, we expect our law enforcement to not overreact uh, to people out on the street, but yet uh, it looks like teachers have have been under so much frustration uh, that they're starting to overreact, and and maybe uh, maybe some somehow we get society to intercede uh, with these families that are that are. Uh, completely ignoring their child. Yeah, it, you know, it's a tough problem, and, you know, obviously we don't want the schools, the administrators, the police in the schools overreacting, um, but at the same time, I think families, kids need to understand what is going on in our schools and how they might combat that. Rather than take these issues up yourself, um, make sure you and your children know. Ask for a lawyer. Uh, ask for help. Tell the administrators you want a lawyer. Um, tell you know the the police or, or tell the school that you want a hearing on the issue. You know, parents and children have rights in school, and they need to be sure to exercise them. That brings us to the close of our hour. I want to thank you for joining us today. We're here every Thursday from two to three with. 
for Legally Speaking with Music and Music. As always, you can uh, look us up on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram. Twitter is at LegalSpeakMM. Call in, write us, hit us up on social media, and let us answer your questions. Uh, We'd love to hear from you, and we'll be back next Thursday.